0: Here's what you might have missed today. The Supreme Court invalidated President Joe Biden's student loan debt relief plan, meaning the long-delayed proposal intended to implement. A campaign trail promise will not go into effect. The justices, divided six to three on ideological lines, ruled that the program was an unlawful exercise of presidential power because it had not been explicitly approved by Congress. Biden said the ruling was disappointing but vowed to take additional steps to relieve the financial burden on those holding student loan debt about 43 million Americans would have been eligible to participate. The Supreme Court today also ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian web designer from Colorado who refuses to work on same-sex weddings, dealing a setback to LGBTQ rights. The justices again, divided 63 on ideological lines, said that Lori Smith, as a creative professional, has a free speech right under the Constitution's First Amendment, to refuse to endorse messages she disagrees with. As a result, she cannot be punished under Colorado's anti-discrimination law for refusing to design websites for gay couples. The Supreme Court will weigh in on whether people under domestic violence restraining orders can possess guns. The court announced today that it will hear a case on the issue in its next term, which begins in October. The case will be the next test on how, the far, how far the court's conservative majority will expand Second Amendment rights after a landmark decision a year ago that declared a right to carry guns in public. And now on this Friday edition, we do have some breaking news. There's breaking news and there's breaking breaking news. Ariva Martin is going to come back and share that breaking news with us when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. And it is the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in real time. However, we are now joined by Ariva Martin because there is breaking news. Ariva is going to bring us that breaking news. Good afternoon, Ariva.
1: Good afternoon, Avi, and thank you so much for holding it down on Friday afternoons. Uh, you have been doing a phenomenal job, and I am uh, glad to be able to uh, take this next 30 minutes, the first uh, half of your hour, this uh, Ariva Martin in real time, to bring to our audience some breaking news in the federal bribery case involving former L.A. City Council member Margaret Lee thomas We have been following his trial, gaveled with our own correspondent who has been in that courtroom every day. And on Monday, just Monday of this week, there were important motions argued before the federal judge that has been presiding over this case. And uh, we were in that courtroom and we had an hour on air Monday after the hearing, to break down what happened in that courtroom where Mark Ridley thomass team was asking the court to set aside the conviction, uh, the uh, guilty verdicts in his case, uh, and also asking the court to set a new trial because of errors made by the prosecution. The judge said at that time of the hearing that she would take the two motions under submission and would then enter uh, an order, issue an order, I should say. And today, just today, the court did just that. The court issued an order, and we wanted to be the first to bring it to our listeners because people have been following this this case so closely. It's uh, garnered so much interest, not only in Los Angeles, but across the country. And I have my legal experts who have been with us throughout this entire trial here to weigh in on the judge's order. Uh, Bobby Grace, a veteran prosecutor, is with us. Uh, He's been helping us understand this case from a prosecutor's perspective. And Mansfield Collins, who is a criminal defense attorney, who's been helping us understand uh, the case through the lenses of a defense attorney. Thank you, Bobby, and thank you, Mansfield for joining me this afternoon and being available uh, as this breaking news happens. We wanted to be, as I said, the first to bring it to our audience. Let's start with you, Mansfield. Are you surprised at all by the court issuing the order today?
2: I am surprised and I'm disappointed. The order appears to be very thin in terms of, of identifying pieces of, of evidence that really are very thin and transparent uh, as a support for her, the judge, in this case, denying the motion for judgment of acquittal, and in the same vein, denying the motion for neutral. I am disappointed.
1: Yes, and that is, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, uh, Manfield, exactly what happened in this case. The judge issued an order, two denials, denying both the uh, Rule twenty nine and Rule thirty three motions. That's the motion for judgment of acquittal and motion for new trial. In both instances, the judge denied uh, Mark Riley Thomas's legal team's request. Bobby, let me ask you something about the order. I-, I had an opportunity to read the order, and throughout the order, the judge made repeated references to. Viewing and weighing the evidence In favor of the prosecution Help us understand How on these motions That is the appropriate standard For a judge to use
3: um, So Good afternoon, Areva. Um Yes, so uh, For their listeners to, to kind of Pick up on this Once there's been a conviction Then there is In the law, there's a presumption That the jury verdict should stand uh, absent, you know, significant factors or evidence to the contrary. And so that's something that is uh, present uh, in both local, um, process, uh, local uh, cases and federal cases. There's just this presumption that once somebody's been convicted, and it, it takes a pretty high bar, as we've been talking about, in order to um, overturn a jury verdict and, and the evidence, which is, uh, what you pointed out that is, uh, that the judge, um, referred to in her orders, um, that the evidentiary, uh, level, uh, that you have to overcome is high it, to try to put it in, um in layperson's terms.
1: So, Mansfield, this is a 17 page ruling. Uh, This is U.S. District Judge Dale Fisher, and in this ruling, she rejects the arguments by Ridley Thomas's lawyers that the jury's verdict against him on the charges of conspiracy, bribery, and honest service, mail, and wire fraud were based on insufficient evidence, improper statements by the prosecutors, or other claim legal defects. That's uh, the judge's summation of why she is rejecting uh, Ridley thomas's team's uh, efforts and the motions that they filed uh, break down for us some of the, the things that the judge pointed to to support her ruling
2: well that 's that 's what is disappointing in the um, in her order um, for example, in the order denying the motion for acquittal um, she references um, that there was evidence, substantial evidence, uh, of some sort of conspiracy and a, a bribe and, uh, and an agreement with, between Mark Ridley Thomas and the dean of the social, uh, School of Social Work. But in reaching that agreement, reaching that evidence, uh, she cited things like, well, there was evidence of a side deal. Well, but there was no testimony about what a side deal was. In fact, the dean of the School of Social Work never even testified in the trial, and there was evidence that, um, that there, there was no vote on any contract that may have been of some benefit one way or another. The telehealth contract is, again, a reference to um, that there was a vote made by Mark Ridley Thomas, but the defenses indicated that that was a consent item, and consent items for the L.A. Board of Supervisors at the time included a bundle of a lot of things at the start of the meeting that were just simply agreed to. But Mark Ridley-Thomas never actually voted. It was something that had been bundled prior to. But that was something that the judge uh, directed part of her opinion to. And, and I think that it's just disingenuous for her to, um, to make that leap of, um, of a connection between the telehealth uh, contract and whether Mark Ridley-Thomas voted on it in a way that he was actually trying to influence a decision. And there are other parts of this order that also find, I I find that she's stretching to find the evidence to support a crime.
1: Yeah. Again, we are bringing you breaking news. The judge in the federal bribery trial of former city council member, Los Angeles city council member, Mark Ridley Thomas issued her order today, uh, Denying Mark Lee Thomas's team's request for a judgment of acquittal and for a new trial, and essentially upholding the guilty verdict uh, that was reached in his case a couple of weeks ago, and that let's go back to that consent uh, vote because Mansfield—that so is one of the areas where I think there is some confusion. And Bobby, in the ruling, what the judge says, it is not the—it wasn't the burden for the prosecutor to provide evidence about what a consent calendar vote means and the process by which that is uh, handled at the County of Los Angeles, because Mark Lee Thomas's team argues that the government failed to put on sufficient evidence about what a consent vote means and how it was actually executed in this case. And the, the court rejected that, saying that wasn't the government's burden. That seemed odd to me. It seemed like exactly that would have exactly been the burden for the prosecutors.
3: You're exactly right, Ariva. Usually, uh, well, not usually, almost everything in the law in criminal places the burden on the prosecution. So this is a little bit of a twist uh, in the way that the judge phrased it. Now, I think kind of what the judge was saying um, almost offhandedly that, um, basically, everybody knows what a vote is, and the prosecution didn't have to explain to a jury, like, what is a vote. That vote is like a common knowledge thing, and here it was clear, according to the judge, um, that it, it had been explained to the jury um, what the actual original vote was on the tele, uh, health contract and that um, the prosecution didn't have to delve into it further that's going to be a big uh, point of contention on appeal.
1: Yeah, I was going to get to that Mansfield. You and I talked a lot about the appellate process and perhaps Mark Lee Thomas faring better at the appellate court than, you know, asking this judge Judge Fisher to reverse herself. Uh in her opinion though the judge makes mention of some of those appellate decisions McDonald in particular uh and uses them in a way that supports her determination of denying the judgment of acquittal and the request for a new trial, what are you thinking about on appeal this case is certain the judge's order and the conviction are certainly to be appealed by Margaret Lee Thomas. How are you feeling about the chances uh on appeal in light of this order?
3: I
2: think the chances on appeal are great um, and and the appeal process should not be um, uh, should not be confused with the the motions the post trial motions, in this case, motion for judgment and motion for new trial. the burden is not very high for a judge to um, to preserve the the judgment of the jury uh, in a criminal case uh, as long as they don't find as Bobby Grace has said substantial evidence of misconduct or fraud or something like that um, but going back just for one moment, orrva, if I can, to this consent vote uh, mechanism because I think it's very important because if it is as we think it is where it included a bunch of issues or a bunch of matters that were being voted on, how is anyone to say, even if Mark Ridley had voted, how is anyone to say that he's voting on three of the five or six matters that were bundled together in the consent item? I, I think this case on appeal, there's a very strong case for overturning this this judgment in this case.
1: Yeah, that consent, the the statement by the judge about the burden not being on the prosecutor, who absolutely should have the burden, I think is troubling and hopefully will be a big point uh, highlighted in the appeal. Bobby, help us understand what happens next. Now we're past post-trial motions, sentencing, uh, is set for August, what will happen between now and that August date?
3: So both sides will have the opportunity to present uh, sentencing um, motions. Um, the prosecution will um, go through and go through the law and then give the, ju- the judge what they think, um, based upon what the convictions were, what Mark Ridley Thomas should be sentenced to in, in terms of length of sentence. Uh, At the same time, the defense will be presenting mitigating uh, evidence, Um, so they'll be gathering statements from uh, family, friends, supporters, uh, and longtime collaborators of Mark Ridley Thomas to be presented to the judge in order to get the judge to uh, go as light as possible in terms of the sentencing. And uh, there may be a fight as kind of Mansfield has previewed for us in earlier discussions, there may be a fight as to whether or not Mark Willie Thomas will get to stay out of custody pending the appeal on the case, which I think your audience will be keenly interested in.
1: There's a big word called allocution, uh, Mansfield, that is going to become an issue when we get to that sentencing hearing. Tell us what that is and how it's going to work in this case.
2: Uh, I, I don't think that the allocation factor will um, will surface in this case because the allocation sort of uh, indicates that um, there's some degree of responsibility that, that that a defendant is is stating or making to the court, and and I don't think that uh, that it would be appropriate for uh, Mark Ridley Thomas. I'm not his attorney, but I don't think his attorneys will have him. Um, involve himself with any uh, allocution process. They want to preserve all the rights that they have to this, to appealing this uh, unfair uh, judgment and getting it reversed. But typically, if there was an allocution, the person is accepting responsibility and asking, almost in a sense, um, not for the mercy of the court, but asking the court to sentence sentence that individual at the lowest possible uh, level on a sentencing structure. But probation. Um, pre pretrial uh the probation office, the federal probation office will prepare a probation report uh on Mark Ritley Thomas. Mark Ritley Thomas's team will have its own sort of private probation reports that they'll be submitting. And the judge will look at everything and then make a determination. And I, I hope that the decision that is made by the judge is to um sentence him to home detention, uh house arrest, uh and 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 allow him to remain out on bail pending the appeal.
1: Let me ask you, Bobby, your opinion about allocution. Do you think in a case like this, uh, one, is it optional for the defendant and two, do you see any benefit to having a client allocute in open court?
3: Um, in this case, there's no benefit uh, or be the no. Say anything uh, about uh, his view of this, expressing remorse, which usually will happen out taking responsibility, offering more when somebody pleading guilty. I think
1: we're having some problems with Bobby's. Uh, audio while we're trying to get that fixed. Let me ask you this, Mansfield. So we have seen a tremendous amount of support in the community for Mark Lee Thomas. There have been prayer vigils. There have been community gatherings. We've seen uh, literally almost hundreds of people pack the courthouse every time there's been a, a court appearance. How important will letters from the community, those that, uh, you know, we've talked about throughout this case, how important were those letters, folks vouching for the great work that he's done in this community, uh, his history of service in this community, how important are those going to be uh, when the judge is making decisions about sentencing?
2: It's very important, especially in a case like this, when uh, Mark Ridley Thomas didn't testify. Um, If he had testified, I think the jury would have had a different view of Mark Ridley Thomas, of his um of his integrity of his ethics i think they just would have had a different view so this is an opportunity now for the defense to present mark Ridley thomas all of his achievements his past his uh all his accolades all the work that he's done for the community all the sacrifices he's made for the community and for his family uh to bring those to the attention of the judge so that the judge can understand that this is not the type of person that deserves incarceration Of any length of time whatsoever. Um, He has no prior criminal history. There are all kinds of factors that they'll take into consideration. Uh, uh, If if this is a a just process and a balancing of the equities, this would be a perfect case for Mark Ridley-Thomas to be granted home detention and bail uh, pending the outcome of the appeal.
1: And Mansfield, what is the typical length of an appeal like this in federal court? We hear about, you know, appeals sometimes taking three, four, five years to make their their way through the court system. Is this the kind of case where you would expect the appeal to be uh, that lengthy? I
2: I do, because this was a case where I never believed that the honest services, the fraud, the uh, other federal statutes that the government used against Mark Ridley actually applied. And so you have a great law firm that that Mark Ridley had defending him uh, trying to uh, attack every aspect of this particular uh, prosecution from the day that it was filed all the way up to um, closing arguments. And so there are huge differences between Mark Ripley's pro- conviction and the typical average conviction uh, of individuals charged with the same crimes. The factual patterns are the difference between day and night. This would be the day that the difference in the other cases are extremely dark and, and troublesome. The conduct here is generally a picture of a man that's concerned about his son that then gets twisted into he had a corrupt purpose and violated his oath of office and engaged in wire fraud and mail fraud and and no one ever benefited one way or the other. There's no evidence of any money coming to Mr. Thomas in his pocket or in a bank account. This is the kind of case that will take a long period of time for the Court of Appeals to dissect because they, they might also think that this should be a garden variety prosecution of a public official, but it certainly is not.
1: And I'm so glad you uh, highlighted that. And we've been talking about that throughout the coverage of this trial, Mansfield, that this is not a case where there was money exchange. Mark Lee Thomas clearly didn't get any money in his pockets. Uh, no trips to Vegas, no private jets, no casino chips, none of the things that you typically hear about in these, uh, bribery and corruption cases involving, uh, elected officials. It's really mind boggling to so many of us in the community as to how this case ever, ever, uh, was prosecuted. And then definitely how, uh, it didn't end in not guilty verdicts on all 19 counts. Uh, But we are where we are, and, you know, throughout this process, we've been trying to provide everyone with updated and accurate uh, analysis, legal analysis, so that they would have a good understanding of it. Before I let you go, Bobby, real quickly, what's your estimate about what the sentencing might be in terms of months?
3: Yeah, we've we've been talking about that, Areva, and I think um, it's going to be on the lower level, Uh, I agree with Mansfield that there's a strong argument for home um, detention, but um, it definitely would not be years and years. It it would be, you know, somewhere in the period of, like, two years max uh, and uh, probably less than that if I had to to bet on it.
1: Well, you know, we're going to hope that uh, Mansfield is right and we're looking at home detention because this is a case that, again, the, the issue of justice uh, can't seem to square it with this case in particular. Thank you so much, Mansfield Collins. Thank you so much, Bobby Grace. Always a pleasure to get your insights. We're going to continue to follow this case. And when we come forward, more with Avi Bernard on Ariva Martin in real time right here on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: And it is the Friday edition of Areva Martin in Real Time. I'm Avi Bernard with you every Friday from 4 to 6. Always such a pleasure to be joined by some of my favorite contributors, Dr. Sean Fletcher, who is a professor at San Jose State University, and Danny Griffin, entrepreneur, educator, motivational speaker. Gentlemen, I want to start with the Supreme Court. I guess we're going to be talking almost exclusively about the Supreme Court because they've been doing so much. None of it has been good. Firstly, Mm -hmm. they... This wedding cake thing. The Supreme Court today ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian web designer from Colorado who refuses to work on same-sex weddings. The thing about this one, one of the many things about this one, the Supreme Court didn't even have to accept this case. This wasn't even a real situation. It was a hypothetical situation. No, No gay couple has ever tried to get this web designer to design a website for them. Basically, this was someone who was trying to attack gay people saying I hope I hope nobody ever tries to get me to, to make a gay website because I'm not gonna do it and the Supreme Court which does not have to accept every case that comes before it in fact they don't accept they don't hear most cases that come before them because they don't have time but they had time for this one this web designer was like yeah yeah basically uh, I just I want to make sure that in case, A gay couple tries to get me to design a website for them. I don't want to have to do it. Supreme Court, you got my back? Supreme Court says, oh, we got your back. It's cool. You don't ever have to do that. And my question is, where does this end? I mean, if this web designer had a brick and mortar business, is the gay couple not allowed to walk in there? Uh, Maybe we should just have, you know, Gays only, straights only, benches, water fountains. I'm not comparing the struggle for LGBTQ rights to the struggle for civil rights. I'm just putting into context how ridiculous this is. If you have a business that's open to the public, how are you going to not serve members of the public based on them being uh, members of a particular group? This is just one of the things the Supreme Court has done today, Dr. Fletcher, I, I want to get your thoughts.
4: I'll be and, and you know while I totally understand you know why you wouldn't make the equivalency of the civil rights movement mainly moving forward the efforts of the African American community, by definition, this is a civil rights issue mm-hmm. From a social and civil and political standpoint of equity, this absolutely is one. And you're right, where does it stop? Where does it end? If you're able to ultimately reach the highest court in the land and you're able to hypothetically present a circumstance and scenario whereby now the Supreme Court setting precedent, which they don't seem to understand that's what they're doing right now, under the guise of an artist, of creativity, now First Amendment free speech is under that? If I walk into Subway to get a a, a, and they call themselves sandwich artists. Can they now decline <laughs> me? And re- really, seriously? No. Can they it's, now it's, it's say true. no? It's want To serve you, absolutely true. Under the guise of artist and artistic freedom, they set a precedent that now absolutely can span way beyond this one case. Where does it end? You're absolutely right.
0: No, I, I, I'm not. I'm not laughing because of the point you made. I'm, I'm laughing just because of. Uh you're you're absolutely right that i didn't even think about that that subway they do call themselves sandwich artists and you can theoretically Uh call yourself an artist in anything like uh like dave chappelle said in half Baked, he's a master of the custodial arts you could say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna clean your business if you're if you're a gay person and so it's just it's it's and I, I, well, I do disagree with one thing you said, Dr. Fletcher. I think they know exactly the president mm-hmm. I think they know exactly the precedent they're setting. I think they're doing it on purpose. I think they took this court this case because they don't like gay people and they want to make it known. They want gay people to go back in the closet. They don't want them to, to be able to live their lives. They just don't want to see it. They don't want to see gay people out and join their lives and, and participating in the spaces they're participating in. Uh, Danny Griffin, your thoughts.
5: Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me again. Um, good afternoon to Dr. Fletcher. Webb, here there in the Yay area. Um, my thing is, uh, historically marginalized communities have to stick together, okay, regardless of our ideologies, religious beliefs, personal beliefs, because at the end of the day, we're all being effective collectively. Um, this case is opening up the, the door for public businesses to discriminate against historically marginalized communities um and that's not good that's not good for african americans that's not good for any other type of uh marginalized group um you know when i first saw this um i thought okay that's an isolated issue for that particular community and i started doing more and more research on this i was like whoa 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 and then i'm looking at the people that made the decision, and then I started doing research on them, and I'm like, wait a minute, the, the, the Supreme Court is six conservative against three, and I, oh, and then I'm like, the former president nominated three, and I start putting all these puzzles together, and I start looking at cases that was passed and wasn't passed, and I'm like, oh, this is a problem. This is a major problem. This is just not an, uh, uh, the LGBTQ community problem. This is a problem for all of us right that identify in a marginalized community and being african-american men right our, our families and people fit this category this is not just their fight this is our fight
0: that's the whole point of this that's the whole point of this and that's why when everyone says well when people who are uninformed say well trump and biden are the same it's just the lesser of two evils <laughs> Come on, man. No. Nah. This is this is this is the example mm-hmm. of why that's that couldn't be anything further from the truth. Mm. While of course Biden does have some questionable things in his past and you can't deny that, but you have to look at the difference that they are going to make in this country for all of us. And it didn't just happen in this case. It's as you said, Danny it's been happening in many cases and not only that's not the only even the only case this week.
5: <laughs> they're on a roll.
0: So <laughs> they, are, they are intentionally trying to roll back the clock and trying to roll back rights. They, they are trying to roll back diversity because they don't want things to continue progressing the way they are. They don't like the thought. Even Clarence Thomas probably doesn't like the thought of things being less white. And that's where we're headed. And so they see that. And they're like, hold up, hold up, hold up. We want things to be more white. We want things to be more straight. We want things to be more just normal boilerplate, white bread, milk toast, things that we're used to. And this Supreme Court is a manifestation of conservatives' fear of no longer being in the majority, of white conservatives' fear of no longer being in the majority which is inevitable. And that's why they're trying to repeal the 14th Amendment. You got you got Trump and DeSantis now trying to repeal the 14th Amendment which which gives uh people the right to natural born citizenship because they don't want Latinos to be citizens even if they're born here. Because they're so afraid of how brown the country is getting. So the Supreme Court in this case is just to me it's clear that they took this case simply because they don't like gay people, and they want everyone to know about it, and they want gay people to be on notice that they are coming for you. And if you think that they're just coming after gay people, you're wrong. Because we're going to talk about affirmative action in a minute. When we come forward, we're going to talk about affirmative action and, and why that's another example of the Supreme Court trying to roll the clock back when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. And it is the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. I'm Avi Bernard with you every Friday from four to six PM, joined by Danny Griffin and Dr. Sean Fletcher. And always glad to have y'all here, especially on a day like today when so much is happening, so much negativity is happening. How do we how do we kind of figure all this out and and get through this? Because it's kind of a dark day. And with the Supreme Court being six three, Sup- the conservatives having a super majority, it's a really difficult situation when just in in even maintaining the progress we've made in this country. So, I want to talk about this affirmative action decision, and the Supreme Court basically gutted affirmative action. Affirmative action really uh, over the last fifty years or so has has made it easier. For colleges to practice diversity and it has allowed people from diverse backgrounds to get into universities that they otherwise might not have been able to get into and I think one of the most important things about this is you really have to consider the circumstances from which people come and we all know that African Americans and Many times, other people of color are uh, facing a lot more obstacles, and even even showing up to class, showing up to class at all is difficult when you have when you are when you are uh, dealing with economic anxiety, food insecurity, you know things like that that a lot of us are dealing with in in the inner city. And one of the ways that 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 you balance that is by by affirmative action, by having people from communities of color, from black communities and Latino communities, you know, making sure that colleges uh, are, are very intentional about admitting them. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, we don't want to do that either. So, so, Dan, let's start with you on this one. Um, your thoughts on the Supreme Court's uh, decision to effectively end affirmative action
5: so so first of all um, a lot of people are you know are really really shocked but us Californians we understand that this has been in place since 1996 we have nine states that have already previously banned affirm, you know uh, affirmative action It's Idaho Arizona Florida Nebraska New Hampshire Oklahoma Washington California and Michigan Uh, the UC system did it here And there's studies out there, um, everybody can do their own research, Cal Berkeley, UCLA. uh, Enrollment has declined uh, since uh, affirmative action has been in place. So now you have holistic uh, approaches. uh, They have a a 13-step program. You have all these different things to try to repair the damage that you've done. So now it's done on a federal level. Now we're impacting minorities, particularly African-Americans, Um, Around the nation And if you already had a disadvantage uh, Financially uh, Educationally Anything, any disadvantage That just puts you further behind And a lot of people think affirmative action Was put into play Not to allow Unqualified blacks in But it was the actual opposite It was to prevent blacks From being admitted into schools And uh, in the workplace And other places, it wasn't letting unqualified people in it was just to prevent them period and now you have a legal right to prevent us from getting in this is a tragic day and it's going to set us back and it's two things is going to happen out of this either enrollment is going to go up at HBCUs uh you're going to see our community colleges enrollment up you're going to see trade schools go up uh you're going to see A lot of people just not attend college, period, and that's what they want. We always need to, college is just not about money or education, it's about discipline, it's about structure, it's about generational, uh, uh, something that your family has done throughout uh, history. I think it's just a dark day for minorities in general, particularly African-Americans.
0: Let's uh, go to JW from South Central uh, Los Angeles. JW, what's on your mind? Hey, how you
5: doing, my
6: brother?
0: Doing well, my brother, what's on your mind?
6: well yeah i i'm I'm grieving because uh first of all Mark Whitney Thomas and judgment mm-hmm. I called some of that information to tell then I'm curious he don't have no type of legal uh, recourse or re- any process he can go through legally first of all, that's my first comment
0: okay well uh i'm I'm not a legal expert uh i believe uh you, you know it would have been better to call when areva and them were on, but I believe she can still appeal um uh, I believe he can still appeal it but um his his um request for an acquittal, and request for uh, a retrial has been
6: denied. Yeah. Okay, now I would like to move on to the next subject. In terms of the Supreme Court, what reads me as well, uh, a lot of us overlook when uh, Trump, he had uh, put 200 and I believe about 270 uh, judges from the Supreme Court on down uh, into office, as well as the major uh, Supreme Court judges. judges uh, at this point that sits on a bit of bench. Mm-hmm. Now, they already had their plan and plot done in the past, and they already brought it to fruition because of Clarence Thomas, because we already had watched that uh, documentary about how he was already, you know, twisted, like a lot to me, his mindset, and that's his motivation for doing what he did with abortion as well as, uh, um, you know, um. Being able to um, get into college and have um, some type of recourse in terms of uh, equal rights and inclusion in general, because they've been trying to exclude us from day one.
0: All right, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, JW. We're going we running out of time here, so we're gonna have to, to cut uh, to cut it off there. But um, but thank you so much for the call. I hear you. Um, Trump does have a third of the court that he appointed, and uh, before we get to Doctor Fletcher's comments, I wanna I wanna get his comments inside of our segment that we do every week. Uh, entitled what in the white privilege it's white and the reason i want to get uh those comments inside of inside of this segment is because uh i believe that this this here ruling does further white privilege as uh rep aoc said if scotus was serious about their ludicrous color blindness quote-unquote uh, claims uh, they would have abolished legacy admissions, a.k.a. affirmative action, for the privileged, because 70% of Harvard's legacy applicants are white. SCOTUS didn't touch that, of course. So, uh, Dr. Fletcher, your comments about the, the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court.
4: Well, it's, it, again, it's, it doesn't surprise me, but it's also the height of hypocrisy, and the caller hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, this is the fulfillment of the original plan when you pack the courts. They fully uh, Trump fully understood that having a conservative leaning court was actually going to support conservative leaning policies at the highest of levels. So absolutely, this was this was strategic. Um, but the abhorrence and the flat out uh, blatancy in terms of not even trying to hide what the agendas are, are getting more and more absurd. To see just blatant hypocrisy out in the open and then under the premise and false pretenses of color blindness, again, it's pushing these old, even 1980s types of political ideologies that were somehow in some post racial. United States of America, and where anything from it, to where now pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and those folks who were born on third base are now all of a sudden going to be competing with those who haven't even been invited to the ballpark. And these historically marginalized and disenfranchised communities of color are the ones who were never invited to the ballpark to begin with. So now you're saying we got to compete with those legacies, those individuals that the Supreme Court did not touch to then say, now you need to go forward and have this productive future or else we're going to penalize you on some other fronts as well. If you don't show you can pull yourself up by your bootstrap. It is a systematic dismantling of a system that was designed to remotely level the playing field. And while affirmative action was never perfect, mm-hmm. it was at least Putting communities in a position to compete, and it was forcing an inequitable system to do at least remotely right by those that it had ultimately done wrong for so many centuries. And the last point I'll make on it, because it it, it lit my fire when I saw so many of these uh, disingenuous conservative uh, politicians quoting Martin Martin Luther King on that we should be we should we should judge each other by the content of our character (laughs) not the color of our skin completely completely not looking at what he actually said Martin Luther King on just to 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 wrap up my point on affirmative action said and let it be forever known He said that a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him. By no means does that indicate that this whole used out of context, judge me by the content of my character. He was referring to affirmative action, quite the the contrary. He was saying you've done black and brown people wrong for so long you must make amends in a systematic way, the same way you systematically disenfranchised us. So do not let people steer you wrong. Do not let people misquote our black and brown leaders as though they are somehow in support of this abhorrent ruling.
0: Well said, Dr. Fletcher. can always count on you to bring it. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, next time we have you on, we're going to have to have you on for longer. I know it was abbreviated today, but thank you so much for your time and your, and your perspective. When we come forward, we're going to be talking oh. to... A, a, an expert, an oceanographer, who's going to talk to us about the titan submersible. And and I can't wait to have that conversation when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports right here on KBLA Talk 1580. And it is the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. I'm Avi Bernard with you every Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Here's what you might have missed. Lots happening with the Supreme Court today. None of it good. The Supreme Court today invalidated President Joe Biden's student loan debt relief plan meaning the long-delayed proposal intended to implement a campaign trail promise will not go into effect. The justices, divided 63 on ideological lines, ruled that the program was an unlawful exercise of presidential power because it had not been explicitly approved by Congress. Biden said the ruling was disappointing but vowed to take additional steps to relieve the financial burden on those holding student loan debt. About 43 million Americans would have been eligible to participate. The Supreme Court today also ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian web designer from Colorado who refuses to work on same-sex weddings, dealing a setback to LGBTQ rights. The justices, again divided on six to three ideological lines, said that Lori Smith, as a creative professional, has a free speech right under the Constitution's First Amendment to refuse to endorse messages she disagrees with. As a result, she cannot be punished under Colorado's anti-discrimination law for refusing to design websites for gay couples. The Supreme Court will weigh in on whether people under domestic violence restraining orders can possess guns, the court announced today. It will hear a case on the issue United States versus Rahimi in its next term, which begins in October. The case will be the next test of how far the court's conservative majority will expand Second Amendment rights. The defendant in the new case, Zaki Rahimi of Texas, admitted to having guns in his home despite being under a restraining order because of allegedly assaulting his girlfriend. After a local court issued the restraining order, Rahimi was involved in multiple shootings, including firing into the air after a fast food restaurant declined a friend's credit card. A majority of judges on Brazil's electoral court have voted to block former President Jair Bolsonaro from seeking public office for the next eight years, removing a top contender from the next presidential contest and dealing a significant blow to the country's far right movement. The judges ruled that Mr. Bolsonaro had violated Brazil's election laws when less than three months before last year's vote, he summoned diplomats to the presidential palace and made baseless claims that the nation's voting systems were likely to be rigged. Sound familiar? When we come forward, we're going to be talking to Professor Suzanne Neuer, who is with Arizona State University. She is an expert in all things ocean. She's a biological oceanographer and marine ecologist. And we're going to talk to her about the Titan submersible, because now remains of the souls that were lost on that vessel have been recovered. And this story has has been evolving. And I just want to get a, a better picture for all of us about what it, what it was like down there, what it is like down there, and just the general dangers of going that deep into the ocean. I'm very excited to talk to you, Professor Neuer when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. And we're joined now by Dr. Suzanne Neuer, biological oceanographer and marine ecologist with Arizona State University. Dr. Neuer, thanks so much for being here today.
7: Oh, hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's such a pleasure, yeah. Uh, I, I just really wanted to speak to you because this this Titan submersible tragedy has has really just been really sad and, and also uh, very mysterious. And I just wanted to kind of kind of get your overall take firstly. Uh, what, what you first thought when you heard about what happened with the or when you heard about the Titan submersible going missing?
7: Oh yeah, I, I obviously, uh, was glued to the news as, as many people were. Um, and, um, you know, knowing the conditions of the deep sea and the extreme depths where the Titanic lies, you know, th- there was obviously immediately a suspicion that the vessel might have failed and that uh, the, um, that all five uh, passengers uh, would have perished. Um, then there was obviously some time when people reported that um, banging noises were heard, so there mm-hmm. was some hope that they may still be alive but then at the end, uh, when the wreckage was found, it became clear that, um, that they were they perished fairly quickly after the descent.
0: And so you talked about the conditions down there. Can you talk about the conditions down there? What what is it about the deep sea that is so dangerous?
7: Yeah, so the the pressure is enormous. Uh, the pressure down there is is caused by that that water column on top. So it's really it's called the hydrostatic pressure and it increases continuously as you know, as one uh, sinks down into the ocean. So think of it as a, as a thick blanket. So the more blankets you put on top of you, mm-hmm. the more you feel that pressure on top. And that's really with the water. And, and it's really, it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive how quickly it increases. So when you go down 10 meters, 33 feet, um, the, you add an atmospheric pressure. So at 10 meters, you have twice the atmospheric pressure. And so with every 10 meters or 33 feet, you add another atmospheric pressure. And so at the end, you know, the depth of the Titanic and likely where the accident happened, you have like 380 times atmospheric pressure. And so that's really, you know, it's really hard for us to imagine that kind of pressure, um, and what is really what caused that danger or any any danger when you have a manned uh, vehicle, um, the interior pressure has to be kept at sea level pressure hmm. because, of course, you have humans in there that need to breathe, and so you build this pressure differential between that enormous pressure outside it's just one atmosphere pressure inside. So you have all that pressure, that force acting on that capsule that contains the passengers.
0: Okay, so uh you know, I, I think it's it's it might be difficult for for those of us who aren't as familiar with with, you know, water pressure and, and what that does to the human body and so You know, we we hear that there was a a catastrophic event, a catastrophic implosion. And and so what does that mean?
7: Well, so obviously, um, you know, one can only speculate. um, But, you know, with this pressure differential and the hull, you know, likely giving in, the water rushed in very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and compressed anything inside that itself contained air. You know, and as as you can imagine, the human body contains air in the lungs, in the sinuses of the skull, in the gut. So, you know, the effect on that, you know, that water rushing in, that pressure being uh, released very or it increased very rapidly, also acted on the human body. So most likely, the the death came very quickly. And, you know, and uh, I don't know what kind of remains have been found. That's obviously still under investigation, but Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, most likely the parts of the body that do not contain air, such as the limbs, you know, that is probably what,
0: what is left behind? Hmm. And so you're saying by you said ca- anything that has air inside of it would have been compressed. In other words, crushed, right? And so the sp-
7: in other words, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So the skull and the torso most likely just because there's air in there, and so that pressure just just compresses it so that so much pressure that it, it, it happens instantly as soon as the water rushes in, uh, is what it sounds yeah, like. Is correct. it okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. And so when you when when you're sending equipment out because you do a lot of work in the in in, in you know with the ocean mm-hmm, and, and so mm-hmm. what what are you what are you, I guess doing when you're sending equip equipment out to the ocean and what are you looking for?
7: Yeah, so we uh, routinely investigate uh, the the whole water above the deep sea for different parameters. For example, we look at the surface and the life there, the phytoplankton and microscopic algae, the mm. microscopic uh, crustaceans that migrate very deeply into the ocean. And then we study particles that are formed by those microscopic algae and that sink down through the ocean depths and sometimes through the sediment. So we use cameras or sampling equipment or sensors that tell us something about how the temperature and the salinity, oxygen levels change and, you know, mm. w- where life is at. Um, sometimes there's cameras and, um, and, uh, and, you know, all kinds of various equipment. So the, the thing why why we can do that without any penalty is because we do not send anything down that contains air. Mm. So, for example, we have 10-liter sampling box sometimes 24 of them that sit on a rosette and that go down. And they can go down all the way to the, the deep sea floor at the depths of where the Titanic is. Now, we usually study not that far north, but still they can go down and even further down. And the equipment doesn't get hurt because there's no air, bo- air body inside that can be compressed and damaged. The equipment. Mm, okay. the same is true, for example, when we send down these remotely operated vehicles that are tethered to the ship that carry no humans, no lives. They just have cameras on, the, on board and strong lights. And, you know, with, uh, the investigators and Coast Guard have used these, what is also called ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, mm-hmm. to find the wreckage. So, again, those vehicles don't contain any air, are not, don't contain human. So we don't need to worry about having to maintain an interior pressure mm. at atmospheric level. So we're not affected by this uh, pressure. And, you know, the steel equipment uh, is fairly sturdy. Obviously, uh, the the depth of the, o- the ocean is also very corrosive, so we use very... Um, you know, non-corrosive material. That's what we have to pay attention to. But we don't, we're not challenged by the issues that these submersibles encounter.
0: We're speaking to Dr. Suzanne Neuer, biological oceanographer and marine ecologist with Arizona State University. So, uh, Dr. Neuer, you said that you, the the Titan, or the Titanic rather, I believe is at about 12,500 feet, Right. And and you said you go even deeper than that in some of your research. Is that right?
7: Yes, but not personally.
0: No, no, of course, of course. You mean you you, you send your you you send your equipment down there that deep?
7: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Exactly. So we have sensors and cameras, and and that tell us what the conditions are down there.
0: How deep are we talking?
7: I have, well. You know, for example, we study a uh, south of Bermuda uh, a station that is called the Bermuda Atlantic Time Series uh, mm-hmm. Station, and that is exactly the same depth as where the Titanic is at. Mm-hmm. So that is the same depth of the seafloor. So we send equipment down there routinely. It costs. It takes us about at that depth about three and a half hours to mm-hmm. send it down and bring it back up. And that equipment is connected to our onboard computers via conducting wires. So we, re- in real time, we get these measurements of temperature and salinity, and of course pressure, because pressure tells us how deep the equipment is. And then, but also information about life down there. So we get that in real time, and then at the same time we have these sampling bottles that have gone in open, so. The water inside is at the same pressure as the pressure outside, and then we can remotely close them and get water from those depths, wow, or any okay. depths along okay. any depths along the way. That's, so, a, that's yeah. incredible. So we, we don't incur any danger ourselves when we do this kind of research.
0: No, that's the best part. You know, is making sure that everyone's safe. Uh, but do, do we know? I'm not sure if you can answer this, but do you do we know what the deepest point on Earth is in the ocean because the 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 Titanic is about twelve thousand five hundred feet um, near Newfin- mm-hmm, Newfoundland, mm-hmm. and is there are there places mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in in any of the world's oceans that are deeper than that?
7: Yes, yes, absolutely. So we have in the ocean the deepest points are the trenches. That's where one the an oceanic plate subducts underneath a uh, continental or another oceanic plate, and the deepest of those trenches is the Mariana's Trench, um, and particularly the Challenger Deep there, and that is about 11 kilometers or 36,000 feet. Oh so that's Lord. about three times three times the depth of the Titanic. That is the deepest known spot in the ocean, and um, researchers. And explorers have gone down there with submersibles. What um, you know? Yes, James. So, for example, James Cameron. He was the the most recent one who went down in a submersible mm-hmm. um, down to the to the deepest depths of the Mariana's Trench. And um, he, but the design of that submersible was different from that of the Titan. It's uh, it was a in fact, all of the research, the manned research uh, vehicles and uh, submersibles are spheres. So that's absolutely the strongest shape when you are dealing with these conditions. And there's spheres. They have um, a titanium mantle or a steel mantle uh, several inches thick. And even though, you know, the pressure, again, is extreme and it's, Still very dangerous, but going down in a sphere that has this uh, thickness, uh, this, that thick shell surrounding it, that is still the safest way to go down. And usually those spheres are not very large. they may be a meter in diameter so that they may have space. In the case of James Cameron going down to the Mariana's Trench it was maybe a, uh, a meter in diameter. He could only go by himself. He went down there by himself? Another... He, he went by himself. Oh, yes. my what? And he he actually made the point that he wouldn't want to have been responsible for the life of anyone else coming with him because he felt like that was his own risk.
0: And he's, so, the, he's the director of the Titanic know, and, and, you know, many, uh, many big time films like that. So... But it just yes. uh, it's so crazy. Yeah. have
7: gone down to the Titanic many times as well.
0: So yeah. what so what is the cuz I imagine you can't have windows on these things. So what is the purpose oh, of yes. going down there yourself? Can you have windows?
7: You have windows. Yeah. And those are of course they are the a weakness in that construction. Right. But um yeah, they're are windows usually very very thick glass that is uh, welded into those, so that pressure, here. the For pressure example, won't
0: break the glass of of the windows in a um, submersible. No,
7: won't break, won't break the glass. So the glass is also very thick. It's it's a very uh, pure glass, and no impurities in there, which would give potential rise to pressure stress. So, and um, I just.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Sorry to cut you off. So I, I'm just—I just have so many questions coming to my mind so fast. But um, if if James, <laughs> ca- it, it took like you said, it takes two and a half, three and a half hours to get down to the depths of the Titanic. Would it take? How long would it take to get to the depths of the the deepest parts of Mariana's Trench, thirty six thousand feet?
7: Well, I would think it's about you know nine ten hours. Oh my of of descent. Yes, it takes it takes quite a bit of guts. You know, I, I don't think I would be made, made out of that material to go down there. You know, you descend and, and think of it. You're not only entirely alone, but you lose surface light very quickly. So you're in absolute darkness. Mm, mm. And you go down there and probably your fear or, or, what you know, the Titan experience. There's all kinds of weird sounds as, hmm. as you know, the pressure acts on that vessel. Hmm. So you're alone, it's dark, and you have, you know, those cracking sounds. And that's probably also what the Titan experienced before it imploded. It probably may, you know, the in, passengers probably also heard very, uh, you know, fear-inducing cracking sounds Oof, uh, before am... oh, my uh, the impl- implosion happened.
0: I am so good on all, yeah. all of that. I have no desire to experience any of that. Last question for you. Uh, so you said you, you you study a lot about the life down there. What uh, I imagine anything with air can't go down that far. You said so. No whales, no dolphins, probably no fish. Oh. I mean, right?
7: Uh, yeah. So whales, there's actually whales that can deep that can dive fairly deeply. So humpback whales are known. Right, whales are known to to dive fairly deep I think the maximum depth uh, has been maybe 800,000 meters so they're adapted to you know releasing the pressure you know and and anyone diving down to even a few meters uh, even 10 meters you know as you dive down as the pressure acts on your lungs you are losing the air Mm. and so it's it's more, you know, you're you not exposed to the same air pressure as when you breathed in in the surface because you're compacting your chest, your lungs lose the air, and it's, it's you know, not going to be as dangerous. And those whales are adapted. They fish uh, for, for uh, you know, submer- uh, cephalopods, mm, okay. um, uh, cuttlefish that go deep. And and they're adapted to it, um, okay. but they don't maintain the air pressure of the surface. You know, they they uh, exhale and their air is saturated, and so they go down, and and there's no danger to them imploding.
0: Doctor so, Suzanne, you know, their
7: evolution has made sure of that.
0: Doctor Suzanne Neuer, you have you have really enlightened me and all of us. Thank you so much. How can we keep up with you? Is there a, a social media handle?
7: Yes. Um, so we have a new School of Ocean Futures uh, at ASU, and you can read about myself, our faculty. It's oceans.asu.edu.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. noyer, for your time and your expertise. <laughs> really appreciate you.
7: Thank you for having me. Take such, care. Such a pleasure. You too.
0: And when we come forward, we're going to be talking to uh, a mayor, who has, has been a part of a really crucial initiative towards ending gun violence. We're going to be talking to Sean Patterson Howard, who is the mayor of Mount Vernon, New York, and also the president of the African American Mayors Association when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. And it is the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. Very pleased to be joined now by Sean Patterson Howard, who is the mayor of Mount Vernon. New York, and President of the African American Mayors Association, Mayor Patterson Howard. Thank you for being here.
8: Thank you. Thank you for having me on tonight. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well, and I'm, I'm very uh, grateful that you are taking the time. I know you're very busy. So I want to talk to you about this nationwide initiative that, that you were part of with the African American Mayors Association. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes.
8: Yeah, so June is National Gun Awareness. Um, gun Violence Awareness Month. And so at AMA, we had over 47 member and ally mayors in 37 states um, participate in an initiative, our, our first initiative, um, to spread awareness about gun violence. Um, our participating mayors were asked to light up buildings and landmarks in Orange, um, showing solidarity with the cause. In addition, we put forth proclamations declaring June is Gun Violence Awareness Month. Um, We wanted to make it clear that there are leaders in this country um, who really, really care about the well-being of the public, and we're reaffirming our commitment to ensuring that, you know, we have a safer tomorrow for everyone in our community. Um, As local leaders, we know all too well that uh, gun violence plays a heavy toll on our community. And so we wanted to make sure that we were lifting up that message and leading in a time where so many are fighting to expand gun
0: rights. Yeah, and so what What kind of difference are you, other than just, uh, you know, awareness is very important. I think that we've all in this country become sadly accustomed to mass shootings and, uh, you know, sadly our children have had to learn how to do active shooter drills in their schools. So... In trying to raise this awareness, what what is the what is the goal you're trying to get to? Just uh, less guns, or what what is what is your main goal in 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 um, working on this initiative?
8: Well, you know, it's kind of an air land sea approach, so it's not just one approach. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we really want to deal with the gun manufacturers okay. and uh, get rid of the um, immunity that they have. And uh, so far as manufacturing guns that end up uh, in our communities and killing the lives, you know, killing innocent children and they're being used in mass shootings, uh, homicides, suicides, domestic violence incidents. So we want to deal with the immunity that the gun manufacturers have. We also want to we are partnering with the ATF, alcohol, tobacco and firearms, really to do gun tracing and tracking. Uh, I live in the state of New York. We have some of the toughest gun laws in the country, but yet so many of the weapons that find their way to the streets of our community are coming from Georgia and Mm -hmm. North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, you know? And so how are these guns getting here? Because you have gun manufacturers who have no standard and they sell guns to their local gun shops. The local gun shop could sell five or 10 guns to Joe. I'm just going to say Joe. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe conveniently leaves them in the trunk of his car every other week, <laughs> and every other week his trunk is broken into, and he reports his guns missing, but those are the same guns that end up on the streets of Mount Vernon and Baltimore and Kansas City and St. Louis and everywhere else around the country um, and, and end up being used in, in homicides and suicides and, and shootings in our communities. And so, you know, we, we look at that as straw purchasing and this mm. is straw purchase. And, and so there's no accountability, right? So if you have a, a gun dealer in your community um, whose store continues to get broken into or continues to sell guns to uh, an individual who, and, and those individuals guns continue to end up in the streets of New York, um, then there should be some responsibility on that manufacturer to say, I'm not going to sell to ABC gun store anymore. They're going to lose, you know, their license and their relationship with us. Or the gun store owner should say, I'm not going to sell these guns to Joe, because Joe is trafficking these guns. Joe is not using these for hunting or, you know, for the safety of his home? Mm-hmm. Why is it that every time Joe buys guns, they end up on, you know, in, in a community and used in in a shooting or or some type of homicide? And, and so we need to look at those type of laws. There are too many loopholes that do not hold gun manufacturers as well as gun dealers accountable when these guns end up in the wrong hands.
0: And, and that's such a great point that I think not a lot of people are... <clears throat> in tune with is you know this is what a lot of disingenuous people say about Chicago Oh, Chicago has strict gun laws Illinois has gun laws well why are there so many shootings in Chicago well that's because a lot of those guns come from states like Indiana that don't have strict gun laws and it's the same thing that you're destri- describing with Mount Vernon uh, and the, the guns being trafficked there from other states and so how is this partnership with the ATF going it's a great idea I think if you're able to stop people from uh, people like Joe Blow from trafficking these guns to your state and others, that that is, I think, such a big problem that if we're able to solve that, then that would that would eliminate a lot of the gun violence in in states that have strict gun laws like yours, like like New York. So uh, so I want to ask you, Madam Mayor, how do you how how is that relationship with the ATF going and are you making progress in that goal?
8: Absolutely. You know, in the city of Mount Vernon, um, you know, when we're recovering crime guns, um, there are top manufacturers. It's not just in Mount Vernon. We really did this. And we looked at we, we had a conference last year, the African-American Mayors Association, as well as Mayors Against Illegal Guns. Um, that's part of Town USA. And we had about 16 mayors that really shared where their crime guns came from. And, uh, and as we were looking at the crime guns, we saw that five manufacturers accounted for over half of the recovered crime guns. And wow. that was Glock, Taurus, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, and Polymer 80. Polymer 80 is the manufacturer of the ghost guns, the ones that you can buy the different pieces online
7: mm-hmm. and put
8: together like, like a, uh, like a kit <laughs> and, and then go out and, and use this gun to kill, um, someone. And so, one of the things that we talked about as the mayors is across the nation, there are over 500 black mayors. You know, how do we get together with not only black mayors, but ally mayors, um, from other communities that, that are seeing violence in their community? And our police department buys a lot of guns from these same manufacturers. And so we need to come together and have conversations with some of these gun manufacturers. One of the other things we talked about is a name it and shame it campaign. And so when a young person or a senior citizen is killed, and I'm saying them because they get different type of attention
7: mm-hmm. because
8: they're quote unquote innocent victims. And mm-hmm. so if a, uh, a grandmother is walking across the street and she's killed in, in crossfire, uh, then we need to say, you know, Miss Sadie, who was 84 years old, was killed by a glock right? Mm-hmm. And and continue to name that manufacturer because we talk about the victim, mm-hmm. we talk about the perpetrator, we talk about the act, but we don't put out there the name of the manufacturer of these weapons. And and your branding is important to companies. And so I think, you know, if you start putting out the name of these companies and you shame the companies and their, their gun companies and their brand is constantly being attached to Two homicides of Miss Sadie or of, or, or of little David who was four and, and got caught in the crossfire or had a, a, you know, played with a gun that was in the house that was unlocked and, and, you know, accidentally killed themselves. You know, how are those gun manufacturers going to reply to their brands constantly being associated with crime and murder? Um, you know, on our urban and suburban and rural communities. So, that's another thing we spoke about. Um we also really, really spoke about remember years ago when Apple iPhones were being stolen all the time mm-hmm. and so all and right. and people when 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 their iPhones were stolen, one of the things that they did is they put in new safety triggers so you the it, find it, my phone it feature. was easy yeah. to, the find find my phone feature facial re- recognition, mm-hmm. fingerprint recognition. So just stealing an iPhone, um, and not being able to use it because it was now locked and you could unlock, you couldn't unlock it. They found technology really quickly because, um, people who were saying, you know, I, I don't want to buy an Apple phone anymore because everyone's stealing them. And, and so maybe I'll go and look at a Samsung or something. But if we're doing the same thing, if we say to Glock, if we say to Smith and Wesson and Gruber that too many of your guns are ending up on our local city streets and causing deaths in our community and being used in homicides in our community, why don't you put some type of, you know, fingerprint um, lock on it? So when you go to use the gun, mm-hmm. that it, only the person who it's registered to can use it. I mean, that's a simple feature. It, technology is so great now, and gun manufacturers can pretty much do whatever they wanted to, and if they were interested and making sure that their guns were not used in illegal acts by unregistered users who picked them up on the iron pipeline up and down 95, 85, um, then that's something that they could look at. So so there are plenty of things that gun manufacturers can do while we try and get the immunity that gun manufacturers enjoy um, overturned or or those rules changed and adjusted.
0: Now, that is an excellent point that I, I really want to ask you about when we come forward. I want to talk to you about that fingerprint issue. And, you know, a lot of a lot of these these gun enthusiasts and gun lobbyists, they they had they're always defending gun uh, guns in every situation. You know, even mass shootings, not the gun it's the person and, and so forth. So I want to I want to talk about that. Why? Why that fingerprint issue? would be a, would be problematic for them why they would be against it why they wouldn't be uh jumping on that idea yeah you know what that's a great idea let's let's make it so that you have to if you buy a gun it's matched to your fingerprints and then you know it's uh you're the one that can use it and if if it doesn't if you don't have your fingerprints you can't use it i mean that sounds like a like a simple logical thing if if cell phones can do it why can't these gun gun manufacturers do it so when we come forward madam mayor i want to ask you about that right here on KBLA talk 1580 and it's the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. I'm Avi Bernard with you, and so pleased to be joined by by uh, the mayor of uh, Mount Vernon, New York. She is also the president of the African American Mayors Association. Mayor Sean Patterson Howard. So uh, so grateful for your time, uh, Mayor Patterson Howard. I know you're know you're very busy, uh, but I wanted to ask you about what we what we were spoken of, speaking of before we stepped aside the that issue of of fingerprinting. Why aren't Gun manufacturers more in favor of that issue?
8: Well, because they have no reason to change their practices. Um, Back in 2005, there was a law passed called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and it blocks the gun manufacturers um, from any type of legal responsibility and any responsibility to create innovations and make guns safer. Or, or to deal with distribute, you know, distributors and dealers that are irresponsible or reckless and, and have negligent sale practices. Uh, so they, they have no motivation um, at all. Their, their bottom line is to make as much money as they can and to add restrictions like fingerprints. It's not in their best interest, right? They're not necessarily – they don't care, about where their guns end up, they care about their bottom line. If they cared, you know, we're looking at 4.5 million would be women would be alive today. Um, 4, 4.5 million women right now who are alive today have reported being threatened with a firearm. Right, so it's not just the homicides that we're seeing in the street; it's also domestic violence it's also, you know, children being killed in homes because they find a loaded gun that is unlocked mm-hmm. and and they're shooting themselves with it so there is no accountability, they have immunity and so they have no real motivation to change their practices.
0: That that seems so counterintuitive to me. I mean, if, if I feel like if if do they think it would affect their sales if they were to have fingerprints because even if even if it's not like they're saying that you can't have the guns it's not. It's not the argument. Oh, don't take my guns. You know that. That all of the. The you know the conservatives try to try to use. Uh, the, you can still have your gun, but just you know we're gonna we're making it so you have. It seems like that would be a really good selling point.
8: It, I think it would be a really really good selling point if you're focused on just selling to people who want to use the guns for legal reasons and and uh, distributors who want to be very responsible. Um, about how the guns are are making it from the manufacturer to the store to the community. Um, We haven't found anyone who's come together and been willing to to move forward with that type of innovation, innovative safety practice um, at, at this time. And, you know, if this is This is critical because when we we talk about gun violence, again, we we focus on who pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we speak about the prevalence of guns, even in crime scenes where, you know, no shots were fired. We need to take a step back again and look upstream at who made the gun and who made it so easily accessible. You know, how these fat cat gun manufacturers have been able to operate in the shadows and evade accountability and their role in gun violence. Um, while raking in hundreds of millions of dollars, we're like you said, we're not talking about law-abiding gun owners. We're talking about the people who should not have firearms, but yet suppliers continue to flood our communities. You can go out and in many urban communities, and within ten minutes, um, you're able to get your hand on a gun. So the accessibility of mm-hmm. guns uh, is is so great that when you have accessibility coupled with people who lack emotional maturity, um, who, who don't have a vision and a focus for their life and, and don't necessarily value their own life and value anyone else's life, and as soon as they get into a, an altercation, um, their first thing in order to hold on to their street credibility or, or to address safety issues is to put their hands on the gun and take the life of someone. Hmm. It it's it, we become a very callous society between the video games and the music and the drill music.
7: Hmm. Um
8: all of it glorifies this violence and, and when you have violence being glorified, when when it becomes the norm in the community as opposed to the exception and you have accessibility easy, you know, this is what we're seeing in our communities right now. Uh and and gun violence should not be the norm. You know, someone graduating and being at a graduation party, and that turns into a mass shooting—that should be not the norm. Going to church, mass shooting should not be the norm. In malls, it should not be the norm. And I'm not just talking about mass shootings, but even you know these auto, these these automatic handguns, nine, ten rounds, um, and then you have like the 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 extra. Oh my goodness! Why am I forgetting the name of it? But but you can you can add to your gun something that turns a basic gun into a an, an automatic weapon. Mm,
0: yeah. Okay. Right.
8: Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's the little it's like a little click fix, and so now you have a 16 year old with a gun who is now even more dangerous because they're because they're able of... to
0: fire more more rounds per second with the with the more gun. rounds. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, so this, this, it's, it sounds clear that these gun manufacturers are willingly uh, selling guns uh, to people who are going to use them for illegal purposes because they'll be able to sell more guns like that. So you've made that clear. And so this, this naming, this naming campaign, the shaming and naming campaign is very important. How can those, uh, those in the media help with that? If they're, if they're reporting on a case, can they, can they find the, is it, is it difficult to find the manufacturer of the gun when when it, when a gun is recovered or if a gun is—I uh, know it's easier to, to to decipher what type of gun was used, but is it is it is it difficult to decipher the manufacture of a gun?
8: Um, no. I mean, I, I think when there are conferences with the local mayors, with the local chief of police, you know, they're just asking, well, why were they shot and who was shot and who did it and how old and what were the circumstances? Right. Now the reporters can say, what type of gun was used? Mm-hmm. And and where did this gun come from? Right. Because when you are able to recover that gun, or when we're able to recover the bullets and and do tracking through what we call um, Niven, which is is a ballistics um, testing system, we're able to say, well, this gun was th- this gun was used multiple times, right? Because we were able to look at the ballistics study, but then also. We're able, we're seeing that the life from life to recovery of a gun is getting shorter. Many years ago, because I've worked in gang intervention for 25, 30 years, and years ago in the community, when guns were hard to get access to, you had what we called quote unquote community guns. You know, Mm -hmm. little posse might've had access to one or two guns. Everyone knew where the gun was hidden in case they had a beef and they needed to access the gun, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when you did ballistic studies, you could see that that gun might have, you know, been purchased in Florida five years ago, and it might have been used in four or five different incidents before they were able to recover it. Now, when we're recovering guns at gun scenes or, or, you know, in car stops, we're seeing that that gun might have been sold in North Carolina in August. Hmm. And it's being used in a crime in September. Yeah. And so the guns that we're seeing recovered in, in car stops and, and at crime scenes are new guns. These are not guns that have been floating around in the community for five and six and seven years. They're guns that people were able to get a few weeks ago, and they're out in the community using them quickly for illegal activities, whether it's a shooting or mm-hmm. whether it's a stick-up.
0: Madam Mayor, the,
7: we're going to
0: we're going to have to leave it there. I'm so sorry we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining okay. us. Yeah. We're, thank you so much for joining us and for the work you're doing. Um, mayor Sean Patterson Howard, mayor of Mount Vernon, New York and president of the African-American Mayor's Association. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work.